Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad Mom Luke's. I'm Mahi and I'm joined by my co-host Sheikh Hamer Saeed and Sim. And on today's show, we welcome back one of our favorite guests, good brother, friend, and teacher, Dr. Muhammad Gilan. Uh, Dr. Muhammad Gilan, uh, please, uh, you know, excuse us as we are trying to do video for the first time. And so, you know, I, I know you were expecting to see much more handsome-looking individuals, but we apologize. Well, I apologize for that. But uh, you know, it is what it is. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See how, see how I affirmed the not good, not so good looking part. Yeah, alhamdulillah. <laughs> People on YouTube, uh, the reason why you're seeing Mahin a little bit cut off is because uh, he put on some weight. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually like on this uh, new diet, which yeah. is not the opposite of a diet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Speaking of working out and exercise, are you guys gonna watch? the big MMA fight tomorrow night. Uh, Dr. Gillan, are you an MMA fan? I actually can't watch fights. Is it enough. against your religion? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a visceral reaction to it. I can't actually fight, like watch physical violence uh, when I know that it's real. Yeah, it just, I can't so wait, to... no, no, at least he watches WWE though. <laughs> you watch WWE? <laughs> It's big, yeah, hell yeah. Like, of course, he does. You know, I went to Egypt. I was living in Egypt. Everyone in Egypt, a lot, all the dudes, they watch WWE. And when I told them that it wasn't real, man, they were really, really upset with me. They, they all thought it was real. Hey, what, what did you say? Uh, you so, so there was. I used to live at this place, and right next to my uh, apartment building, this guy used to own this little uh, snack shop, and he used to rent out motorcycles. And they used to have this little TV, this you know, the, the old school twelve inch TVs. Uh, with the antenna on it and hit it once in a while for it to come straight, you know, so uh, He they'd be watching whenever the WWE stuff would be going on and I Just buy stuff watch and I just laugh and then leave, you know, and then after like a month of, of living there I was like guys, you know, you know, this isn't real, right? And he goes, what are you talking about? I go brother, you know, this isn't real, right? He's like, wallahi, it's real. I was like, <laughs> the Egyptians, wallahi, I was like, no, 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 it's not, it's not real. It's, you know, it's like, no, 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 how dare you? Those those guys are about to attack me, bro. Cause like, I forgot who's Batista or something. The, the Egyptians love Batista, bro. Especially, really? especially in they were watching some rerun stuff. I don't know what it was, man, but they got real angry with me, bro. And I just left it, you know, I was like, you know, it's all good, man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They thought it was real. Grown men, yeah. dude. A lot of these, some that, of these dudes were over 50 years old, man. That makes sense now how they can believe all the nonsense that goes on their Egyptian television. <laughs> sure. But but you know what? As far as the UFC fight is concerned, man, I told myself I wouldn't be watching and following the vlog stuff. But, but man, every time I watch a video with Habib, have you heard of Habib, Norma Gamedo? Yeah. Yeah. The guy, mashallah, he keeps it, he tries to keep it as 100 as possible, you know. And uh, he's kind of an inspirational dude, mashallah. Uh, they have a series called Anatomy of the Fighter, and one of the episodes it just shows him praying constantly. It's all praying, yeah. this and fasting and talking about Ramadan. I was like, man, this guy, mashallah, man, he he holds it down, um, you know. And uh, it it just, I know people don't like to hear this, but the type of dawah that he's in, man, I I I really really like it, man. You know, obviously the fighting part is something that's, you know, that we can talk about as far as you know halal and haram and all that stuff, but. Being out there, one of the tallest people compared to Muhammad Ali versus Fraser, a level of you know people witnessing this fight and yeah. what it is for the MMA world, biggest pay per view probably, you know top definitely top five ever, 
out of out of the fighting yeah oh man it's this is something else yeah i mean he, he's made some jabs at the religion as well so it's become personal so we're doing qiyam for him tonight and we're going to be praying for him and i encourage all of our listeners that if they have a shred of iman shred in their heart that they would make qiyam for habib habib Habib, we'll, call him Sheikh Habib. Well, let's call him Sheikh Habib from now on. Sheikh Habib Norma Gamedov. It's very, very important. It's the uh, the honor of the religion that uh, he's protecting. Your wala of your believers. <laughs> so I call on your wala. <laughs> call on your wala. But in light of that, like neither of these guys invited me to watch the fight. So no, I have nowhere to go. I, wait, well, he's we, traveling. I don't have anywhere to go either. I was mad when I found out we ain't watching it together, bro. Yeah. Uh, Where are you going? I, I can't tell you that. Then you, 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 you'll end up city? calling my friend that who didn't invite you, and then you would get upset. And then he's like, "Hey, dude, why'd you tell Mahin that I invited you?" And then it'll get. Do you, Do you watch so, UFC fights? No, because I heard the haram. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you know, you know, you know who, who's conveniently <laughs> jumping up all <laughs> over this. Secret. <laughs> the, the Muslim feminists of you on Twitter, they're like loving that that fatwa, and they did like. Uh, they conveniently ignore the fatwas that say MMA is permissible, but the one that they find that you know to make to, anything that'll uh, emasculate men, they're, they're going to make sure that they become a mufassir or or a sheikhan, you know, or sheikhan, <laughs> make sure that they they let everyone know about how MMA is haram. Mm. Yeah, it's all over well, Twitter, man. They also ignore the fatwa about hijab being wajib. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They, they don't care about that. No, they, that's when you're mansplaining and yeah, doing all kinds patriarchy of... mansplaining. Not not man. I don't know. I don't like. It's whatever. <laughs> but you can. But well, yeah, well, go ahead. Well, um, <clears throat> speaking of picking and choosing from these ideologies like feminism, right? We have, you've been recently. Uh, doing a lot of lectures and, and uh, podcasts on uh, um, this idea of critical race theory. And one of the objectives of our podcast has always been to help uh, young Muslims and uh, parents, family members, you know, make sense of the world around them and, and try to really understand where um, a lot of the ideas are coming from that they're seeing from their uh, Muslim activists or, or leaders and, and be able to see things for what they are see the reality for what it is instead of putting a certain type of lens on it like like for example the feminist lens that we were just talking about or the liberal lens or or uh, or the communist lens and so on right what we want or, or what our goal has been from the very beginning has been to allow people to see and evaluate uh the reality for what it actually is and one of the reasons why we talk about these concepts is because um, of that, so that so that you can be able to decipher things yourself in an intelligent, coherent manner. And uh, one of these more popular things that um, that we're seeing through social media and through some through some of the actions of our our Muslim activists is um, coming from this idea called critical race theory. And most people would be like, "What the hell is that?" Right? So. Yeah. And I was trying to, I was actually talking to my daughter about it. She's a teenager and she's, you know, she's a junior in high school and we have some conversations and, you know, it seemed very fascinating. It seemed like something very appealing to her. She's, she's contemplating taking law uh, in college and she's thinking about like what specialty to go into. And when I was telling her about it, she's like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, this makes sense. Yeah. And she's like really enamored by 
all the ideas that critical race theory is bringing up. And to the Muslim who reads the Quran and learns about um, these power dynamics in relation to how Firaun and, and Musa salam, and all these various examples of power dynamics displayed throughout the Quran and even the Sira, critical race theory it becomes very appealing. It seems like, yes, this is something that fits perfectly within the paradigm of Islam. So uh, briefly, can you just start off with explaining uh, what critical race theory is and when it first started uh, to kind of take a foothold in, in the West? Uh, <clears throat> so the historical kind of starting point for this really was in the early 80s. Uh, with critical race theory, and just for the listeners, when we say when they talk about critical race theory, what they're what they're really talking about is the intersection of race and power and law all coming together in one in one package, and how that can uh, be exerted systemically to advance the interests of one group at the expense of other groups. So, when they talk about the white supremacy, for example. Um, uh, the impact of colonization on colonized nat uh, nations, uh, the impact of the continuing impact of slavery in America, for example, um, in Australia, the continuing impact on uh, the white settler colonialists that came in and dispossessed the indigenous population and the aboriginals from their land, and how they basically, when they erected the structures of their legal system and government, they did it in such a way that would Apartheid is like a really um, obvious example of it, where you have just in your face, if you're white, this is what you get. If you're not, if you're black, this is what you get, kind of a thing. With critical race theory, they're looking more at um, implicit ways of this happening, where it's not as obviously stated. So if you look at uh, one of the things that they will tell you for in the American context, um, if you look at um, uh, the crime of possessing marijuana, or it's legalized, if they catch a white person, with marijuana, number one, they won't shoot them. That's, you know, if they don't shoot anybody, they catch a white person, they take him into jail. Um, this person gets um, uh, charged with possession of marijuana, however the amount is. They go to the in front of the court. They may actually get off with just a fine or some sort of community service or some, you know, just a slap on the hand. The same amount of marijuana, the same uh, uh, record, let's say that has no criminal record but just happens to be a black person when they go in front of the judge they're very highly likely to get jail time and if both the white person and the black person get jail time for a crime it's been shown that a white person will get much less jail time than a black person would black person is more likely to go into maximum uh, maximum security prison than a white person is and so this is the attraction of critical race theory is to look at number one when we had slavery, it was obvious. There was one group of people that was definitely dispossessed. They were um, chattel slavery. They were owned by white people. It's a pretty in-your-face thing. Jim Crow is basically taking that and making it more of a, a hidden system so that you have the prison system and the prison industrial complex that is really functioning in the economy on the backs of black prisoners, disproportionately jailed, disproportionately um, uh, pro prosecuted through the system. Um, you have uh, uh, the way even the bail system is working. It is also to disadvantage black people and keep them in jail for longer periods of time. Um, in Australia, if you look at 
the way that um, so the, the indigenous population, and I'm still learning about what happened exactly when they when they were first um, uh, when the white settlers came in. The indigenous population was living at the coastal areas, but as the white settlers came in, the indigenous population got pushed into the interior. They got dispossessed of their land. They got pushed into the interior. They're away from resources, away from water. Um, and um, just the treatment and the system that was set up was to disadvantage them at every turn. You actually see the impact of that now in their health outcomes. So part of our uh, medical school education is to look at public health and the disparities between the uh, average Australian population, and by average, they really mean the white Australian, versus <laughs> the indigenous population. They have less life expectancy. They have twice the rate of diabetes, or I think uh, four times the rate of diabetes, twice the rate of heart disease conditions. Um, <clears throat> they're more likely to die for, from a number of diseases. Um, so this is what this is where critical race theory comes in. It just it looks at the system, it looks at how the law is set up, it looks at how race is impacted by this, um, and it looks at how power exert, is exerted by the powerful group to disadvantage everybody else. Well, that's well. So yeah. so if, if I could just uh, explain from if I explain from why why am I hearing an echo? Is your YouTube on over here right now? That's probably why. Uh, they want to turn off YouTube. So, uh, w w what I'm saying is that if we can understand, sorry, let me just get my bearings straight. Um, if I wanted to, you know, play the devil's advocate and say, like, hey, you know, in the past 100, 200 years, we had um, the effects of colonialism and the rewriting of history from um, white settlers. And this this whole, um, you know, the, the whole narrative of the world has been really written down by white people. What's the problem with reevaluating how the narrative was uh, was was kind of created by the white man? What's the problem with that, Dr. Gillan? There's no problem with that. We actually should be the first ones to say that, you know, I mentioned it in my recent episode with regards to the to reason and rationality. The way that it's being taught is that it started off somehow with the Greeks. For them, nobody was there. It was just the Greeks, and then from the Greeks there was a dark period, and then it was the Western Europeans, forgetting that there was a continuity, that there were people involved that transmitted all of this throughout, and the Greeks were just one stop over before the Arabs and the Persians took it, Muslims, who translated, commented, and then after the Muslims, went over into Europe, and then the Europeans took the baton. And so for us to say, yeah, it was rewritten, and it was rewritten to make the so-called white man seem to be the, the epitome of rationality. They are the smartest, and, they, and they, they're the finality of, let's say, even evolutionary theory, that for you to be the most fully evolved human, you also lose your pigments. You become a white person in Western Europe, and that's the highest thing that they have. So we don't have a problem with people saying, you know, studying this field and saying, can we just look into this and, and see that there are there are lies being perpetuated to advantage a particular group of people and make them look like they're the highest, you know, thing that we can achieve. Um, and there's nothing wrong with us examining all of these things, as well as examining how these lies are systemized through a legal system to disadvantage everybody else. Yeah. We don't have a problem with any of that stuff. So, like, one of the things about, like, Somebody may not have heard about what critical race theory is until maybe very recently, right? But 
people have heard about things like um, white privilege as a concept or institutionalized racism or the prison industrial concept uh, prison industrial complex especially based upon uh, if they watch that Netflix documentary 13th um, yeah. so like and when you see that you know you would like like you said just now that critical race theory sounds like a subject that should be studied and um you know and we we can make a lot a lot of logical conclusions behind it right so why don't we talk about the positives of it first before i know we, there's some crit, crit, criticisms as well that we can make but like let, let's talk about some positives of it first uh, i mean um just to show that we're looking at it from the from a holistic point of view i mean the the, the things that i just mentioned are very strong positives right this is what attracts people to it when you look at actual outcomes of human beings who are for all intents and purposes are supposed to be equal at least from a biological perspective and yet you have a group that somehow ends up dying 10 15 years earlier than white people and they have twice the rates of certain diseases four times the rates of other diseases and then you look at the conditions that they're in and the way that the system is set up to disadvantage them it was set up from the start that way and it continues to this day to do that. And then when they try to, I mean, they have this thing uh, called closing the gap, which is a very patronizing uh, paternal model of uh, let's, you know, we, I'm the white, the great white man who's looking at the situation right now and I need to fix the indigenous population. And so they, they come up with laws and systems to try to close the gap because the indigenous population is dying earlier. They're having higher rates of certain diseases. Let's bring them up to the standards of where white people are. And what does that mean? Let's teach them how to live. Let's teach them how to do these things. Let's teach our way of life is superior to their way of life. As opposed to, um, so they criticize ways of life, which it has some validity, but the real reason they are dying earlier and they're having all of these issues is because of the dispossession that started at the beginning, pushing them into the interior, getting them out of the resources, and then setting up the system in a way that excludes them. So when an indigenous person comes into the hospital right now, um, Penan has a really wonderful um, a passage. I can't. I think it was in uh, Black Skin, White Masks uh, where he says this. Who, who other, was it? Wretched, who was the person you just cited? Franz Fanon. He was a, 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 a an Algerian French. Um, his background is interesting. He's a black. Um, what's the colony that he comes from? Oh man, it escapes my memory right now. It's a, it's French, a, it's a French colony. A French, I think it was Algeria. Algeria would be the main colony uh, of France. Yeah, I think it was Algeria, but it was—I can't remember. There was another specific area that he comes from. Anyways, um, but he's one of the major figures that he's uh, that uh, that is looked to in critical race theory, and he's actually one of the first autoethnographers, people that write about their experience um, as a, uh, the a French black. colony of Martinique. Martinique, yes, that's what it is. He died in Algeria, though. Um, he died from cancer in Algeria. Um, so anyways, he, um, he was a physician, and he was talking about his experience as a black physician in Paris. And how, and this was in The Wretched of the Earth. He talks about his, black, his, black, his experience as a black physician in Paris, and when a black from Martinique, a black person comes in from Martinique, uh, who's living in Paris, coming in as a patient, and how the French doctor treats him, how the French doctor dismisses the concerns, how even now to this day, by the way, uh, when you look at how uh, American doctors who are white uh, treat black patients, 
they don't give them as much uh, analgesia because they don't think that they can feel pain. This is a subconscious thing. It's not that they don't think it consciously. It's that the way that the training is, the implicit biases that are involved, the implicit racism that's there. We know that opioids, when you go to the hospital, as a woman, for example, who's about to give birth, whatever pain medication that you receive, if you're a white woman, you're going to get more of it versus a black woman. A black woman uh, can go through more pain, can go through more complications, and we see this in the outcomes, and the way that she gets treated in, uh, in hospitals in the U.S. is actually obviously different from the way that a white woman would. So this is where critical race theory comes in. It looks at these things and, and explains them. So Franz Fanon talks about, uh, in The Wretched of the Earth, about how a black person is treated, how they're dismissed. The same thing actually happens with the indigenous population in Australia. An indigenous person can go into the hospital. She can have, we studied a case, um, again, I'm not the best with names, but she had broken ribs. She had sepsis, which is a, a bacterial infection that just took over her body. She was expressing her pain. Um, she was checked in by the police. The physician that was involved just made assumptions about her and about her background and why she was checked in by the police. And the poor lady ended up dying out of subpar care. It was a completely preventable death from a medical perspective. But because she was an indigenous person, there were a lot of factors that came into play that basically resulted in this death that are all, when you look at them, perfectly manageable. You can totally, as soon as, as just identify them, just point them out. And show to people that you are making these assumptions, you are making these biases when you're engaged with these people, um, uh, whatever race that you come from. And so this is where critical race theory comes in. It just looks at these systemic, not just systemic, but also implicit assumptions that people are making. as they And they break down language. When you use particular terminology and you talk to somebody and you, um, and you express yourself in certain ways, this is actually a cultural conditioning that you've had because of the upbringing that you've gone through, because of the education system that you've gone through. It teaches you to talk about, in America, to talk about African-Americans in a particular way, about Native Americans in a particular way. It gives you assumptions about Asian-Americans. It gives you assumptions about all of these people. And the standard for all of these assumptions is the white person. The standard is always the Western European. You are always judged vis-a-vis -vis the white person, which is something that, if you actually look back at it, it was systemized. This whole thing was systemized. It really became something in the early 80s. But Malcolm X was talking about this way before. And much before him, others have been talking about Malcolm X what pops in my mind right now when he's talking about uh, in that famous clip that you can find on YouTube, who taught you to hate the color of your skin or the way that your nose looks or your hair? Who taught you to think that you're ugly? Who taught you to think and it's always by the standards of beauty of the white person. So when you look at, for example, um, Fair and Lovely, this is also an element of perpetuating the idea that the beauty standard has to be fair skin, blue and green eyes. And so they look at all of these things um, and they make these criticisms, which are, I personally, it's very enlightening stuff. Um, uh, when you look through how they set up the education system, how they teach you to think about the world, generally speaking. So one of the criticisms that we have as Muslims, which actually relies upon using the tools of critical race theory, is to look at the education system and how it perpetuates atheism from a very young age. So I looked at uh, my youngest sister, now she's in college, but when she was in grade five, grade four, you know, I look at her science textbook. I go to the introduction of the book from her school and you read what the intent of the book is. 
And when you read it, you're like, well, they're trying to turn these kids into atheists. That's pretty much what they're trying to do. They don't know it, but then the way that the book is structured and the way that they teach them how to reason through things is so that by the time they enter into college, that's why you have a lot of parents coming to you now and saying, my son, my daughter, 17, 18 years old, they're having doubts about Islam. Why? They're memorizers of the Quran, they studied, they went to Madrasa, they did all these things. Well, the rest of the curriculum, the rest of the system taught them to think in a way that gets them to reject religion at the end of it. So for us to use critical race theory as a tool to examine how is this curriculum set up to generate atheists? Because that's what it's doing. Okay, one second. Okay, one second. Yeah. I got a quick question. I got a quick question. We have an echo. We have an echo. Do you have your YouTube live on? No, I don't. Let me just check everything. I think somebody's got their YouTube live on. I'm an airplane. Airplane doesn't matter. How's no, it now? Good, no. No, good? Fine. I'm just I'm just closing every app I have. Maybe something <laughs> echoing. Yeah. Anyways, um, the if uh, my understanding was the this is the establishment right that's dev- that's kind of like pushing this kind of curriculum. Yeah. Um, a lot of critical rate. I mean, I was listening to an interview um, with a w- w- with a well known author here in America, and he was who's you know an expert on this field, and he's saying that. The establishment here has always associated like like race and religion, like the white Christian establishment. So, would you then disagree that the white Christian? It's not a Christian establishment anymore that's pushing this because wouldn't they want to push like a Christ like a Christian view of science in their books if they want to maintain status quo? That's what they would like to do. But the way that I mean, I'm not as familiar with American history as I could be to talk about this. Um, so I'm not going to make uh, elaborate commentary on it, but the only thing I could tell you is that, from my understanding, the American system is set up on the separation of religion and state. And so you have people that say you cannot bring in religious teachings into the curriculum. That in itself is an ideological position because you are going to say that I'm going to leave religion privately in the closet. Um, and therefore, when you go through that, well, what, where are the values coming from? when you teach the kids that to be however you want them to be, how to think about the world, where are all these things coming from? It has Christian roots and elements, which in turn we would say it has religious roots and elements, but you're not exposing these elements. You're just telling people, for example, human rights. There's a lot of literature looking at the religious origins of human rights. The fact that the United Nations Charter of Human Rights is actually founded on a religious perspective. It's a religious worldview. What do you mean human is special? You're really truly an atheist through and through, we're just homo sapiens. doesn't matter. So they have to rely upon theological foundations for it, and that's th- that, that work exposes these things. But when you teach it to kids throughout the education system, K to 12, they're not getting taught this stuff. They just get taught this is what humans have arrived at, enlightenment ideals, uh, reason, the power of reason, which is not really reason. It's just empiricism that they're teaching them. And um, it's really just an appeal to emotions. So when they say, do unto others as you want done unto yourself, this is not... A religious doctrine this is just an emotional thing it's actually an art there it's taught from the perspective of a narcissistic approach that I want to be treated that, that way therefore I will treat others that way it's not about Allah would want me to treat others that way it's about me wanting to be treated that way so that changes perspective for people when they think about these things um, well I know I know when I was young um, growing up you know I saw a lot of the disparity between the same you know uh, power dynamic uh, disparity that we see today um, back in the 90s I, I started looking into communism as a solution you know 
uh, before anything. I just wanted to see, like, all right, well, um, this clearly isn't working. People are still, right now, the, what, the, what, what the West has set up is not working. And communism seems like in, an appealing solution that it can create equality between people. And as you as I pursued the logic in that, you know, I quickly learned that, you know, communism leads to atheism. But, you know, well, in my young mind back then, I'm like, you know what? Even if it does, I don't have to take that logical route. I don't have to pursue. I can take the end result and try to utilize that for my benefit, you know, and. And I think a lot of people are kind of falling into that trap with these ideologies like critical race theory, feminism, postmodernism, and so so on, right? They're, they're looking at, well, it doesn't matter what the, um, what's it called, the first principles are to derive or, or the, the way they, they came to the conclusion that they did. Um, all that matters is the results. Are, am I looking at power dynamics? Am I able to see the, uh, the people who are oppressed in the world, am I able to recognize that or not? And, and I, am I able to pass that, hmm. that knowledge on to the people who are following me on Twitter and Facebook and so on? So, um, look, you, everything, yeah. package, everything you do is a package deal. You might think that I'm going to take, you know, the good or whatever, and, but it's a package deal. Um, when this, th when this thing started a few years ago to become more popularized, um, Everybody was taking on things that nobody would argue about with regards to, uh, to the, um, the abuse of power to dispossess people, to disadvantage people, these things. And even now, this is not controversial, but you see the logical consequences taking place as, it, uh, as you take it as a package deal. In the view of Muslims now, um, going back and, and reinterpreting I wish they would just ignore the Quran and just say, like, I got nothing to do with this. I'm just going to go and promote whatever I want to promote in the name of justice, however I understand it. But no, they are going back to Islam and saying, actually, the people of Lot, it wasn't because of uh, homosexuality. That's not the reason. It was because they were brigands and they had quta'at-turuq, and that's why. Um, you know, they were, they were abusing things. They were stealing. They were robbers. They were this and that. Um, but if they were consensual, then that's not the reason. No, um, the, so yeah, was, yeah. I mean, the, one of the things I heard was they were gay rapists. They were not just gay. They were gay yeah. rapists. And it's the rape that, that were, they were punished for. Um, there's another one now. It's like uh, she got like a lot of views talking about how the hijab is actually nothing but a cultural thing. Um, totally. Um, there's no nothing in the Quran that says anything about the hijab, according to her. Um, and so... It's not a surprise to me. Every time I see, there is an overrepresentation. Just so that we're not saying everybody, there's an overrepresentation of Muslims who were practicing Muslims who used to study Aqidah. Some of them know a little bit of the Quran. Um, you know, wore the hijab. For whatever reason, as soon as they get into this field, you find the women overrepresentation of them taking off their hijabs. Some of them still have it, but there is a number of them that. I don't know what happened. You started studying this, and then you took off your hijab. Uh, guys that uh, and girls as well, you know, men and women who get into it and start to justify drinking wine now and drinking in general. So you find them going out and partying, doing whatever. Um, and the ones who took off their hijab, some of them become just pretty vile, like just you know, men hating. You know, the patriarchy. We got to dismantle it at every level. All of this is a problem. 
Um, also, guys, I've heard of guys that got into critical race theory, left the MSA, stopped going to Aqidah classes, came out as bisexual. <laughs> so I don't understand, like, you know, you, you know, you know the you know what a thing is by the consequences. When someone gets into it properly, then you see the consequences. And it goes like there's a problem with the source, and the fact that they have valid issues that they bring up that we have no problem dealing with. You know, we can say like this is you're you're right. You're absolutely right. There is an overrepresentation of black people in jails. They are being uh, prosecuted heavier than they are with white criminals. Um, sometimes they're not even criminals. They, yeah, you're right. They're getting into their houses and shooting them. And this is something to do with the way that the system is set up, which is teaching people to become something that it's not a human thing to become. Well, the problem is when you take the, when you don't understand the assumptions that this whole theory is founded upon, and how it uh, promotes activism, the ideology that it promotes activism from, you start to adopt the methodology, you start to adopt the philosophy without re realizing it, and then you start to think about the world the way that this theory was set up to think about the world which is at its root, at its, at its foundation, un-Islamic. It is devoid of the Qur'anic perspective. It actually challenges Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's way of creating the world. It says the way that Allah created the world is dysfunctional. Wait, and you're this talking about critical race theory here? Yeah, critical race theory, if you take the... Uh, the oh, that's, that's my goal. Whoa, alhamdulillah. I, I had like, a heart attack there, brother. Oh, I was wondering, I thought... Yeah, you I know, thought you converted I, a gender and he well, was ringing through our headphones. It just made me rethink my iman because uh, I was reminded by the verse that, you know, when Allah's name is recited, your heart constricts. And I kind of, <laughs> my heart kind of did constrict right there. No, it, it, this is more of a shock, don't worry. You cannot plan this out. You can't plan this out. I said critical race theory says the way that Allah created the world is dysfunctional. There's no such thing as a coincidence, brother. I can't make this up. This is amazing. La ilaha illallah. All right. There's no such thing as coincidence, brother. There's no coincidence. <laughs> so they, the way that they treat power, they talk about power, they say power in itself is dysfunctional. Nature of power, the nature of hierarchy, by, by definition, is problematic. For a Muslim, it's like, no, Allah created the world to be that way, that وَفَضَّلَ بَعْضَكُمْ عَلَى بَعْضٍ فِي but right, I want to stop you right there, so so we can break this down molecularly. Because let's just help me understand this properly too. Because I'm kind of confused yeah. about the roots. I understand what you're what you're saying, but the roots are are, are a little problematic for me. So you're saying okay. that from the get go, they're saying that power and power structures, i.e., authority, is something that is not a good thing. Is that where yeah. it kind of starts off from? Okay, so so the way I was seeing it, and I'm glad you mentioned that. The way I was seeing it is that it's a type of science it's a type of lens of expounding upon the uh, rifts that you have in society whether the power struggles and race and how some races like you were talking about filling the gaps some races have been oppressed over the other right and what's causing those and what systemic problems and what systemic understandings are leading to all of this but from the get-go so the philosophy of critical race theory is revolving around that power is a bad thing revolving around power in itself is a bad thing gotcha of so any type of power sure i'm sure of it those watching listening they're gonna be like shaking their head no no that's not some of them might say that but in action that's actually what they're doing 
uh, I mean, some of them will declare it openly, like this um, in my last podcast when I did that book review. He flat out actually writes that. So it's functional saying, so is power he, itself. So functional power. So is so are they saying that this is as of right now with theory and still we'll, we're working out what the solution is? Or are they claiming the people who are touting uh, all of this uh, uh, political race theory, uh, not political race theory, uh, critical, critical, race. critical race theory, are they saying that, no, yeah. we have a solution and this is definitely not it, so listen to our solution. So are they still in baby yeah. stages? What, what's yeah, the deal uh, here? Is there, is there end result the destruction of power dynamics? Is that what yes. they want? So yes. th- it's almost like communism, basically. Anarchy, yeah. An- it, that's anarchy. why we're... Like when we say, but the problem is, is even with uh, even with with communism, there's there's power and there's there's dynamics and there's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you, yeah, the human being can't be alleviated. From the that. thought leaders of critical race theory then become the people in power. Exactly, but in, I don't their I, worldview. But right? I don't. Are people now? We have to be honest here. Are people that are 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 uh, um, initiating and very strong in critical race theory and and writing books and. The head. I don't even know. You know who? Who? If there is even like the horseman of critical race theory, is there a such thing? There's a number of figures. Um, okay, but the thing is, so are they? Are they claiming that they're going to be in power? Is this their movement? Their movement. You'll have to go into like critical race theory. Under it, you'll have queer studies, gender studies, race studies. Okay, um, you I have organized as in like. The, um, the institution of like something, I'm just going to make up a name that's close to it, something like the institution of studying whiteness and power or something like that. Like they literally have names like that. They erect these institutions and paradigms and they say like, this is what we're doing. So they, um, so they and hate whiteness. Here's, here, yeah, because whiteness right now to them is like, this is the root cause of all evil in the world. It's not Iblis, it's the white man. And a, a majority so, of people that are researching, sorry to keep cutting you off. I'm just trying to understand this properly. Um, uh, so are are the majority of people behind this, are they people of color? Or are they uh, are they white people themselves? That's the irony of it. The <laughs> irony of it is that it's people of color taking up theoretical works of white people, white men specifically, and, impl- and, and um, employing them to do their work. Say it's, it again. I'm sorry. Say it again. So, so they're utilizing, they're building off of the knowledge that you know, white men like philosophers uh, of the past, like Nietzsche and and all them, and they're building off of their knowledge and their understandings of the reality, and they're they're building this new philosophy based on that. Right? Am I am I understanding that correct? That's what it is. So they use the work of white men to advance their cause. So hold on a second. I the white man situation that you're in. And the white man is going to save you? Right. Hmm, okay. And you've got white folks today that I know that they have so much white guilt that they're at the forefront of it too. That's another Here's example. a question to ask. Yeah, Here's a question to ask. Same thing with male feminists, you know. For the critical race theorists out there, here's a question to ask. If, let's just say that we, were, we had like a magic wand, and through this magic wand, I created absolutely equal conditions for everybody. Let's say that I erased all of the inequalities. If there's anybody that is going to commit a crime, they will all be prosecuted in the same way. Um, If there is any advantages, everybody will get the same advantages. I've erased all of the wage gaps that exist. I've done all of that. Let's just say that I've done all of that. But the white white man stays in power. Are you going to be okay with that? Hmm. That's the question to ask. 
And the answer I suspect is going to be like, no, because the white person is, is the problem with the power. The whole thing is dysfunctional in its own so, by so itself. As opposed to what, Dr. Gillan? Well, what are you saying? I'm just trying to be the devil's advocate here, trying to be the, the CRT representative. And, and they'll say like, well, what, what would you say is the way we should view people as? You know, I think that like... I would say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is at the end of Surah Al-An'am. Surah Al-An'am is like one of my favorite surahs because Surah Al-An'am is, it came down with 70,000 angels all in one shot. And Surah Al-An'am is all about Tawheed. Surah Al-An'am, towards the end of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He's the one who created you and made you into succeeding generations one after another. And it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that has put some of you over others. And the reason for putting some of you over others, creating hierarchy, creating power dynamics, لِيَبْلُوَكُمْ To test you in what He has given you. And then as a warning, Allah says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ سَرِيعُ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ سَرِيعُ الْعِقَابِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is very swift in his punishment. In other words, if you don't do this right, you're going to get the punishment very quickly. And if you repent, come back, fix yourself, you're going to fall into error. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also all merciful and all forgiving. So the creation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala done it in a way that he's going to put, and if you look at the history of civilizations, always been back and forth. One group... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, these are the days that we just exchange it between people. Some people were in power at some point, now they're not. I mean, if you look at, morning I was going through Surah Yusuf, and um, just as a counsel to people, you know, Muslims, you should have a daily word of Quran, because it will just a reminder, not just Ramadan. I'm going through Surah Yusuf this morning, and I'm like, subhanAllah, look at like Yusuf alayhi salam, you know, children of Israel, they get into Egypt, he's in power. They're the ones that are running the show. And then, lo and behold, a few generations later, comes Musa alayhi salam, and they're enslaved by Pharaoh. These are the days that we exchange between people. So, Allah can put you, I mean, even in Mu'id al-Ni'am, Mu'id al-Niqam, Tajuddin al-Sukri, where he writes about why do you have tribulations, and why does Allah take blessings away from you, and why, and how to bring those blessings back, and to take away the, the, uh, the difficulties that you have. In the book, he highlights, he says, I'm writing this for his time. He's got all these people are in certain positions of power. So he's got the wali, the wazir, the khalifa, all these people. And then he says, the first thing all of you need to recognize is that you're not in this position because of anything that you did. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala putting you in this position. Hmm. And the material causes and means that you got there, at the end of the day, they're not the reason why you're there. It's Allah putting you there and he's testing you. And so the first thing you have to recognize is that you are a slave of Allah. And you need to do the, the 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 position that you're in right. So it's not about who's in power. It's not about how long they're in power for. It's about I can use critical race theory to see is this person in power using their 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 position to advantage a people just based on their background, based on their affiliation to them. If that is what is happening, that is an injustice that I get to speak against and say that this is wrong. And that's why in uh, the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ tells us, Sayyid al-Shuhada, Hamza ibn Abd al-Muttalib, wa rajulun qama ila sultani jairin, fa amarahu wa nahahu fa qatala. 
the master of martyrs is Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, the, the uncle of the Prophet وَرَجُلٌ And a person, رَجُلٌ could be said in Arabic to a man or a woman, a person who's standing on their two legs, who stands up to a person in power, whatever that power is, فَأَمَرَهُ how To command them to do good, to forbid them from doing evil, and then gets killed in the process. This is to the extreme level of getting killed. This is how much you have to speak against injustice, against oppression. So when it comes to critical race theory, I don't have a problem with critical race theory as a tool as such. And I can look at it and then say, I can break down systemic things that are happening yeah. where a group of people happen to be in power and they're advantaging themselves and disadvantaging others. They're dispossessing others. Yeah. Now I can speak against that. This is how I can use it. That's a, that's how I was seeing it. I was seeing it as a, as a tool, likewise. Yeah, and you know, you you brought in, you brought up an amazing hadith. You know, the the hadith of uh, the master of martyrs. And when I, a few years ago, when I started hearing that hadith being touted by uh, leftist Muslims, you know, Muslims who describe themselves as activists, and you'll see them, you know, um, yelling at. Uh, uh, you know, court dollar, proceedings so. and things like that, you know, yeah. um, and they're considering themselves part of that hadith. And you, yeah. at first, when I was first hearing that, I was like, oh, wow, you know, they've they've come around. They've actually seen the light, but they're they're actually utilizing that hadith to fit into their paradigm. It's not yes. like it's not like they're utilizing uh, critical race theory as a, as a specific tool for in a certain objective. Mm. It's that they utilize that hadith because it fit into that paradigm I at see. that moment, mm. and that's what the problem problem that we're facing with throughout the Muslim world with, you know, v various Muslim activists doing whatever they want and they utilize scholarly support when they need to, when they don't need to. They say, you know what, um, I'm gonna go ahead and do whatever I want anyway, and you guys are gonna have to deal with it because I have a large following. And then, uh, you know, a lot of our scholars end up, uh, next time they need them, they end up falling, uh, falling, bending over backwards to help out that Muslim activist again. So uh, that, that's, that's the problem that we're facing. Right so now. basically, is if I just want to sum it up, you're saying that, like, vice versa. They're using Islam as their tool for their overall yes. critical race theory worldview. That's exactly what they're doing. That's a good thing that he just said. Fatahallahu <laughs> <laughs> Allah give you open. That's actually exactly what they're doing. They're using it. Islam as a tool and critical race theory mm. as the actual paradigm that they think through. Yes. And they think, the thing is, like, I mean, if you just just go back to the Quran, you know, in Surah Al Nahl, what Allah says, um, Allah fuddala ba'dakum ala ba'dan fi rizqi, faman ladina fuddilu liradi rizqihim ala ma malaka taymanuhum. You know, it's like, fahum fi sawa afi bi ni'mati Allah yajhadun. Like, it's, my God, the Quran is amazing. <laughs> so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you that those who were preferred over others in sustenance and bounties and blessings, they're not going to be able to take it and go for absolute equality on this and go like, let's just divide the wealth equally between everybody. Oh. He said, Allah says, this is not going to happen. Don't even bother. This is how he created it. And then he says, at the end of that surah, he's like, you're actually now, so now you have critical race theorists that will make Muslims feel guilty. Or the privileges that we have, the fact that we live in the West, the fact that we have all of these things. It's like, well, look at the shoes that you're wearing were made by so-and-so in this in this country. How dare you? You know, don't you feel? Meanwhile, the critical race theorist is the one also doing the same thing. He's wearing clothes that were made by children in Bangladesh. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's complaining. About, it's the hypocrisy of it is just amazing because they and 
there's no Quran, by the way, in all of this. And just like Mahin was saying, Islam is the tool. Islam is a package. It's like a performance. You know, just it, it, use it as a performance tool. Um, I had a sister come to me uh, uh, last week. She was really troubled. She said that um, she wears a hijab. She's, she's at work. They're doing some new initiative. And the initiative was to, something about inclusion and, and LGBT being coming in and all that. And she said they came to me and they asked me to participate. Now, she was not ordered to participate. It was not an administrative demand for her to participate. But it was almost like a social pressure. It was like, you don't, you might jeopardize some things. You might risk some things with your work, with your HR and whatnot. And she said, the thing is, I know why they came to me. It's because I'm wearing the hijab. And the symbol to them is a tool. This is uh, they can use me now for their ends. Yes. So wow, subhanallah. It's no longer about the human, the individual. No, no, no. It's you're a tool because you wear the hijab, and so we can use you in this inclusion campaign, so that we can have all of these groups together in one place. Yeah, and, and people always said that, that it wasn't going to affect each other. Just mind your own business. It's not going to affect you. No, it's going to affect everybody. Yeah. It so, already has. <laughs> it, it already has, and so the, my problem with all so. Islamophobia also falls under critical race theory. All of this stuff is under critical race theory. You know, it's and you know, the, Dr. Glenn. Here's the the most difficult thing that I always often hear from, you know, just from people within our own camp, practicing Muslim scholars and students and stuff, and they're like, "Mad Mamluks, you know, you guys and your friends, they make a big deal out of nothing. It's like a a small problem in the greatest scope of things that you guys look at, you know." everything as a, a kufr ideology or something that's alien to islam and the, 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 pro, the problem is that they are our own you know scholars and leaders who are you know the, the the vanguards of the religion they have fallen so far back that they haven't really even looked at all the various ideologies that are kind of overlapping each other and have kind of formed a modern construct and are shaping the minds of, of tomorrow and they're they're delegitimizing what you know people like you and I are are doing over here at at the Madman Luke. So they think it's not it's not important. Let me tell you something. I know from just um, uh, like from the grapevine, a little birdie told me yeah. that a couple of very prominent figures in this particular country, Muslims who are working in critical race theory stuff, they expressed conflicts that they're having with their own religion. Because they're coming across, they're coming up with conclusions from the work that they're doing, and they're and they're seeing things in Islam, and they're having problems. So, you know why I think this is a big deal. Back, I miss the days, man. I remember, um, is it Qamran? Yeah. He was saying like, we miss the we miss the days of the Salafi versus Sufi debates because we were yeah. all using the Quran. Yeah, and, uh, Kamran, that's our friend Kamran Riaz that he's talking about. Yeah. Shout yeah. out Kamran. So, yeah. It's actually, it's a brilliant thing to say. You know, we, we missed the days of the Quran, of the debates because everybody was using the same thing. We're all coming back to Quran and Sunnah. And then what happens? We all grew up. We all calmed down. And everybody still continued to be a Muslim. Yeah. Now, the debate is not between Salafis and Sufis. The debate now is between critical race theorists who are Muslim and what they disparagingly refer to as traditionalist Muslims. Yeah. Well, the problem is when everybody calms down, the traditional Muslim is still going to be upon the Quran and the Sunnah, and they'll be, they'll be calmed down. But the critical race theorists would have imbibed so much of this poison; they're going to leave the religion. Well, and and, and it's not just that. When I when you go on to some of these critical race theorists, at least from the United States, you see their like Twitter accounts, 
and all you do is that all they do 24 7 is make a business out of islamophobia about you know creating fear among people that you know look how you're being oppressed and how you know the the it's all about just chaos and fear and and propelling it's gonna sound like, it's, it's, it's gonna it's sound bit, like a bit too much yeah <clears throat> this is gonna sound like a too much of a description but it's a quranic description it's a satanic approach to keep sowing the, the fear into the muslim community because that's what shaitan does he promises you fear he promises you poverty and out of that because you're afraid and you're anxious, what do you do? You go and commit things that you normally wouldn't. And so it's not surprising for me when I say Muslims, even if they say, yeah, yeah, I align with the LGBTs but I, uh, groups, but I don't, uh, I, I'm very clear about my position. I know that Islam says this is prohibited. I'm very clear on that. Um, but, you know, they're an oppressed minority and so we are just aligning because of this and that. You know what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says al Ahzab, he did not put two hearts in the, into the chest of a person. And so now you have it's I don't it's either they're not listening to people or they're not engaging enough with the Muslims. But when I'm I'm coming across a lot of young Muslims in university who see these sisters in hijab campaigning and going and, and promoting and talking about I, I have really good friends who are LGBT. I'm aligned with them. I don't promote the practice. But I'm aligning with them. A lot of young Muslims are looking at that and they're feeling a cognitive dissonance. They're like, the Quran is very clear to the degree of, you know, destroying a whole nation because of this practice. Meanwhile, you're coming here and telling me that I can align with this group and promote and do all of these things. We're not saying, you know, from, from our perspective, you as a human being, we respect your humanity. We do not condone any form of violence against anybody because of how they identify themselves. We're not... A, the problem with the, with this particular issue is the LGBT groups have linked a behavior with their identity. So now explain to me, riddle me this. How do I stand up for somebody who identifies an impermissible behavior, clearly prohibited in the Quran, with their humanity? How am I going to, how do I de-link this? They, they put us in a bind where it's answer to this, by the way. I'm not promoting an answer. I, I don't know how to answer this conundrum. How do you take somebody who says this practice, which is based on something that is totally prohibited in the Quran, and that's how they identify, this is how this is who I am as a person, a person who does this. And then you come in and say, the Quran says this is clearly impermissible. And then you're asking me to align with you and to, and to promote this and to do that. Well, look at the data. Polling shows that uh, for the homosexual community, um, the representation of non-religious affiliation, people who just leave religion, is significantly higher than the general population. Over, I think it was uh, the number of something in the neighborhood of 55%. And when I brought this up, I had a sister ask me, she said, isn't that because you guys are not inclusive? Like, for God's sakes, why, why do I have to include something in the religion that is completely prohibited just for the sake of you're jeopardizing people's Islam? I'm not jeopardizing their Islam. If they want to be Muslim and continue to practice that and acknowledge that it's haram, they're still Muslim. At least they know that it's haram. But what you're telling me is that I have to change the religion now because a lot of young people coming up, they're they're not able to square the circle. How can I stand up for a behavior that is completely prohibited while at the same time, um, uh, uh, you know, recognizes prohibition? It doesn't make yeah. sense. And I think the misunderstanding that people have, and it's something I try to explain to you know, the youngsters is that 
as on an individual level, if somebody comes to you with some issues that they're troubled with, and that's actually a good thing because they know that the feelings that they're having, whether it's homosexual thoughts or tendencies, or that we're not going to just shun this person away. You, this person is coming to you for help. You have to help them, right? You have to help and talk to them, and you have to find the people that are specialists in helping. But on a general group, an initiative, a, 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 a movement, let's just call it a movement because that's what it is, right? It's a movement, and we're not going to support the movement or align with the movement. But as an individual, Islam is going to uh, it's going to be ob obligatory on me to help an individual that's saying, hey, I'm troubled with this, help me. I'm not going to, if it's my brother in Islam, I'm not going to say, hey, you're not a Muslim. No, he's a Muslim. That's why he's coming to me because he knows there's something wrong with it. And he knows, you know, so th that's one thing. But what we're talking about here is when we normalize something, when we know it's haram, and the people we're surpassing, we're, sh we're, we're short-circuiting their feelings of what may, may, what may be a type of guilt that they're feeling, we're telling them, no, there's nothing to be guilty about. This is you, man. This is you, right? And it becomes normalized, right? That's a dilemma that we have. And that's, this, is, this already happened a few years ago. And my main thing is this, that it has become so normal. And now we're seeing the, the left, especially the LGBTQ, that they're actually becoming very, very militant towards Muslims and people who don't agree with them. We're seeing a, a type of militancy, a right. I'm not talking about armed militancy. I'm talking about a militancy yeah. that's arriving, the, the attitude that, we, what do you mean? It's like the person who doesn't agree with their lifestyle, but will still treat them as a human being, that's yeah. that's a very problem that that's a very problem filled personality. So you know, we thought that a lot many Muslims thought that hey, if we support this initiative, they're going to help us because they're the only ones. Because there was a time that they, the LGBT was the only one supporting Muslims, but now it's it's starting to wither away. And even amongst the LGBT, there's there's a lot of factions that are developing now, right? And there there's there's uh, you know a little bit of a war that's occurring amongst themselves. The older generation versus the younger generation. The older generation that wanted to get married. The younger generation was like, hey, we didn't do this to get married. We just want to be gay. We just want to be promiscuous. Not gay, because gay means happy. We want to be sodomites and we want to, you know, enjoy our perversion. But we, why are we talking about marriage? And then you have the transgender that the gays are disagreeing with. The gays are saying that, you know, just because you're gay, it doesn't mean you have to become the other gender or try to become another gender. You have to be comfortable in your skin and be gay, you know? <laughs> so, so there's, there's a lot of problems that are occurring. Sorry to cut you off. And the reason why I mentioned all of this is this. It's very, very simple. And I'm glad you mentioned it all comes back to the aqidah and the belief because that's all it is. People who are a part of these initiatives, they're very troubled and problem in their aqidah and their iman, right? And all of this comes back to there's two things. And I like to break it down very, very simply. Is The first thing is the misunderstanding of the reality of some of these initiatives. The second yeah. thing is the misunderstanding of the deen of Allah. When you have a combination of not understanding this reality and not understanding your relationship with Allah, this is a it's very, very problematic. And you'll be susceptible to anything that comes your way that may just seem something that's going to give you some power and empowerment, right? And it's coupled. That is a problem too because it's going to give you empowerment. At the same time, you're going to feel like you're helping the oppressed. So you're satisfying something in yourself that, hey, I'm helping the oppressed because that's what I'm supposed to do. It's the prophet thing to do, right? And so, so uh, and all of this came from a simple question. And if I'm rambling on too much, you guys just cut me off. Is that there's a, uh, there's a girl that came to me, you know, a Muslim girl. And she said, you know what? I don't, I don't believe in God anymore. I was like, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you mean you don't believe in God anymore? It, it was that, just that simple. 
you know? And I was like, I was like, what do you mean you don't believe in God anymore? And I think the reason why I just answered so fast, it seemed like she was ready for like a, a reply that was going to be a strong reply. Like, what do you mean? Like she, I think she thought I was going to be pretty angry or whatever. I was like, wait, what do you mean? I'm trying to understand for right now. This conversation is good. I told her this is a very good conversation. What do you mean? You don't believe in God. She's like, you know, I, I don't think I believe in God anymore. It doesn't make sense to me. I was like, okay, fine. What do you mean? I'm not going to ask you what doesn't make sense to you. First, I want to know what, what are you talking about? What doesn't make sense to you? Well, you know, I don't, I think that love is, is a, a very universal thing. And um, by the way, this is like somebody that's 16, 17 years old, like a senior year, uh, high school uh, student. Uh, everyone should have uh, the right to love. I knew ex as soon as she said that, I knew exactly where this is going. Yeah. I was like, what do you mean everyone has the right to love? She said, well, Islam is very hostile and very strict against homosexuals. I said, okay, what else? Is that your only issue? She said, uh, generally, I mean, I, I kind of disagree with the unfairness with men and women in the Quran, especially in the Quran and this, and men are always the ones that are translating and this and that. I was like, okay, is that your only problem? She said, yeah. I said, you're still Muslim. Why are you telling me you don't believe in God? Do you believe that you have a creator that's Allah? Yes. She said, yeah. I said, you just don't understand the certain <laughs> things in Islam that aren't sitting well with you. That's all it is. Don't say you don't believe. You're yeah. still a believer. Alhamdulillah. Say la ilaha illallah. I said, say la ilaha illallah. Like, la <laughs> <laughs> Repeat your shahada. No, I just said no. Just, just to show you be proud of, course, of it. Of course, yeah. And but the ringing of la ilaha illallah resonates within the soul, within the heart, and gives yeah. you power even yeah. if you don't understand what you're saying. Um, so I said, say la ilaha illallah. She said, la ilaha illallah. I was like, see? Dude, you're Muslim. It's totally yeah. fine, you know? Now, now that I think about it, it could have seemed like I was telling her to read her shot. No, now that you said that, <laughs> yeah, so so when I so when I said like, was, I'm like Doctor Shadi must have been uh, he must have left a mark on you. No, no. That, during our visit now that I think about it, well, alhamdulillah, that mine didn't go that way because she seemed like somebody who was very. Uh, she would she would have said something right away. So yeah. that being, I, so I said I was like, and then I told her the story of Treat of Hudaybiyah. This is all I did. I told her about the story of the Treat of Hudaybiyah, how the Sahaba were having a dilemma with the tenets that were given to them that they weren't going to do Umrah that year, this year. I mean, I talked to her for about 15 minutes just about the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. She didn't know what the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was, right? Yeah, and that. just for the listeners, um, just give up. Yeah, so... Like, a really, like yeah. it was a treaty that... that yeah, so so in, in, there's a surah in the Quran, Surah Al-Fatih. Rasulullah has a dream that he's going to be performing Umrah, yeah. right? So he tells the believers, listen, we're performing Umrah. Let's yeah. go set out to do Umrah. And I'm really abridging this. Everyone, yeah, yeah, please go check us out. Brief synopsis. Yeah. So, so the Sahaba say, okay, let's go. So the believers, they get ready. They go in their ihram. They don't carry their weapons. They have an area where there's just a small area where they have some of their weapons. A few people were allowed to carry their weapons from what's generally understood, but nobody's carrying their weapons, which is something that doesn't happen. They go to Mecca. They're heading towards Mecca. They uh, stop in a place called Hudaybiyah where they set camp. And the the uh, 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 Suhail ibn Amr uh, is one of the people from the Mushrikeen al-Makkah. He comes and he says, you know, he's trying to make this conversation with Rasul. He says, I, you know, I actually feel guilty about going so fast through this because this is such an amazing story, man. Yeah, well, um, the, the, but yeah, no, I just internally feel kind of guilty can about go, this. Go actually look it up. But yeah, but, but, but essentially. The but essentially, he said, you know what? We're not, you're not going to perform Umrah this year. The Sahaba were like, wait, Rasulullah, you told us we would perform Umrah. But Allah never said when you were going to perform Umrah. He said it's going to happen. He didn't say it was going to be this year. 
right? And some of the believers were able to see the blessing in disguise. Obviously, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saw it. Umar Radiallahu Anhu obviously uh, was a little, you know, he was amped up about this because he is a person of honor and that honor uh, was a very powerful thing for him and he, he didn't like the way things went. So basically, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to make a long story short, goes to his wife and says, listen, the believers are not listening to me of exactly what I'm asking them to do. She said, listen, Ya Rasulullah, they've, they've been going through a lot. They're going to, they're, there's a lot of pressure on them. These things are not making sense to them right now. Why don't you just go ahead and shave your head? And what's the significance of that is that it's as if you performed Umrah. Allah asked them to perform the rituals as if they went to Umrah. So they get the ajr for Umrah, basically, um, because they didn't get a chance to go this year. Shave your head. And when they see you, you're in this, you're in that state. Then they're gonna uh, follow. So in the morning, Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to sacrifice his animal, and the Sahaba saw him with his head shaved, right, and going to sacrifice the animal, and then just all bursted out and crying, right. And it's even you know some of the explanation of Tasir and Kathir is saying yeah. that while they're cutting each other's hair, they're crying right, because right. they're afraid the wrath of Allah is gonna come down. They didn't disobey Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They just didn't know how to deal with this is it this is our time to shine we waited so long our yeah. families some of our families are like we, we we could never fathom that you know like what was said to the the some of the tabi'in said to the sahaba they said you know if rasulullah was living amongst us we'd carry him on our shoulders we wouldn't let his feet touch the ground yeah. right and the sahaba they said that you know that's very easy for you because we paved the way for you but we were fighting our own fathers and our brothers for, for yeah. rasulullah yeah. and for allah you know yeah, that's so so I explained to her the the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and what happened, you know, a, a, in a little more detail. And I said, look, look what happened to Umar radiallahu anh. At that time, what happened, what, what Allah and Rasul decided didn't sit well with him, not because he disliked Allah and disliked Rasulullah. The reality that was in front of him had shaken him so much, it was too much for him to handle. Yeah. And that's why the hikmah of Umm Salama, the Rasulullah's wife, was some was a turning point in Islamic history. The, the, the Muhammad Sallallahu the best of creation, who all the people from beginning of time to the end don't equal not even a dust particle on his shoe. He goes to his wife and asks for his wife for and she he takes her advice. He does exactly what she says and the Muslims are successful till 2018 as far as generally understanding the Quran and the Sunnah, right? So this is amazing. This was the the, the energy from you, brother. The energy is from you, man. I'm usually not like this. Allah just usually talk about his sneakers and, and clothing, man. So don't worry. <laughs> no, but so so what I'm saying is that, that that just because you don't have a solid understanding of Islam, it yeah. doesn't mean that you're out of the fold of Islam. I said you're a Muslim. I said you know what? That's fine. We'll talk tomorrow. Let's say this doesn't sit well with you. That's totally cool. You're still Muslim, right? Yeah. Not everything doesn't sit well with you. But I said to her, and I'll, I'll say one thing, and this is very elementary, but this makes sense to a lot of people. I said, you said that everyone has a right to love, right? She said, yes. I said, you know what? You love your mother, right? Yes. You love your father? Yes. Do you love your brother? Yes. You love your friends in school? Yes. Everyone has a right to love, right? Everyone has a right to love. Now, I said, now the LGBTQ, are they saying that they just want to sit with one of their friends on the couch who's the same gender and cuddle with them? Are they? Is that the right that they're asking for? Because that's what love can mean too. They just want to sit on the sit on the couch and just cuddle and kiss each other on the cheek and watch a movie. Because if they do, that doesn't. There's nothing really wrong with that, right? Is that is that yeah. what they're asking for? That everyone has the right to love? What are they really asking for? She said, "Well, they just want to you know be married." I said, "Okay, that's fine. What does marriage mean? Like I'm helping her break down. I'm talking about the reality portion. What is the reality yeah, of yeah. this?" Like I, I said, okay, let's just say you have Bob and you have John over here. Bob and John love each other, right? 
They love each other. They want to get married. But why do they want to get married? Just so they can hang out and hold hands and walk in the street? She said, what do you mean? As if like I'm like the creep now, right? I said, <laughs> I said no, think about it. They want to procreate, right? She said, yeah. I was like, how are they going to procreate? What's going to happen? What's that process with them? It's like, well, they can't have a baby. I was like, then why are they getting married? Why do they want to get married? What's the point? Are they're, they're going completely against, because she was kind of atheistic. I'm, they're going against the preservation of the species, right? Like, yeah. why, why are they doing that? It's, it's a lust. They're, they're plain and simple. They want to engage in sodomy. That's all it is. They know they can't have a child within from amongst each other. So they're actually asking for legalization and acceptance of their sodomy. Are you okay with that? And the, the look on her face was of shock. And I, I needed that shock to happen. Right. And I, I yeah. talk, talk to this openly to my students. That shock has to happen because that's the reality. They don't just want to cuddle and hold hands and be lovey-dovey. That's not what it is, dude. You know, we have to be real with ourselves. So it's understanding the reality of what something is and the understanding of the sacred text and what the sacred text is asking. If you have a good understanding, basic, healthy understanding of both, your that means your iman is intact. Right? Allah gave the reality in front of you. You understand the reality for what it is. The sacred text tells you something. You understand for what it is. The, what we're talking about here right now is people having a problem with their iman. There's a misunderstanding in the text and the misunderstanding in reality also. Right? You very much said that there's some people that you talk to. Allah says this. Muhammad says it. It's very, very clear. Yeah, but we need a little more detail than that. Okay, let's give you detail of the explanation of Rasulullah This is how it goes. Yeah, I don't know. What they're actually saying is, man, you know, this is this is a little Neanderthal. We need something more advanced. We need something more philosophical. That's what happened with the Muslims and the Greeks sometimes, right? When you were very, when, when something was bought up, it's like, yeah, we need a little bit more of an explanation. This is not what it is. We need more. You're just a little backwards just by sticking to these texts that are 1,400 years. We have people who, 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 who you know, advanced civilizations, right? So that's the dilemma, right? They're, they're, and that comes from having an inferiority complex of your text because the text that you have on the face value will seem very gruesome to you in some parts. Yeah. But there's a context to that, right? So, so my, my general man approach to this on a basic level, and it works for most people, and remember, man, even Rasulullah wasn't able to give hidayah to his own uncle that was protecting him for so many years. So there's only yeah. so much you know that you can do. Um, and people are going to label you, man. And I know that you're stressed out on so many different levels and fronts because you're trying to talk to people who are trying to... Uh, uh, no, you're, you're actually trying to put some truth out there. And people yeah. who put out the truth out there, you know, they have to have patience too. They both go hand in hand, you know? Uh, but, uh, for Sheikh Abra, I think one of the things that people um, we acknowledge, acknowledge with people is like when we're interacting with them and like quoting them certain things... They'll get in the defensive. They might. They probably at the end of the day, they're insecure, right? It, it, a lot of it comes to insecure and loneliness, man. You know what, what I'm saying? I, so I, I, I'll bring it up since uh, Dr. Gilan is the specialist. I'll give you an example, right? Of a discussion I was having with some uh, friends last night. We went for dinner and we had to go to a like uh, a Zabiha spot because I was the only one in that crowd that was Zabiha. <laughs> so like um, so everyone, everyone was giving you the mean look. No, they were they were all talking about like well we that's what I would have done overly pious guy they, hovering they were, they were above like, all of us when we go to Chinatown you know we can't invite Mahin or this or that right <laughs> so I was like listen let me ask you a question that's um, why you're not invited to fight by the way oh <laughs> so like um, I asked them a question I was like talking about it and like they were like because I, I was talking about hey listen like one of the things I told them specifically for myself was um, I had fallen off 
and went back to like eating nanzabiha for for a few months. I was like, I was missing prayers, and they were like, "That's not a proof." I'm like, "It's not a proof for you. It's a proof for me, right?" Um, yeah. And then we were talking a little bit more, and I was like, "Listen," they're like, "What about nanzabiha scholars? Scholars that support that opinion?" I'm like, "Okay, fine. Let's say that's the case. Sure. L- let's say that's your opinion. So it's, but I'm like, does eating, does consuming something that's haram, affect even if you don't know it? Does it does it like affect your spirit, your, your soul?" And they were like, yeah, but what if we don't believe it's haram? Like, okay, non-Zi is halal, but do you agree that maita is haram or that cross-contamination is haram? Like, yeah. So how do you know when you go to Chinatown where everything's freaking cooked in pork, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, how, how, how do you know? Because I, I, I know brothers that straight up pretty much will be like, it'll be like sausage gravy. And they're like, oh, it's probably turkey sausage. No, no, I know brothers. Oh. That, no, I knew brothers, man. I knew some brothers that were borderline learned brothers, not completely. They're like, man, it's it's a percentage, bro. Listen, it's not a lot. It's just cooked. It's not like if you have a whole egg and you cook oil in it, man. It's only like one percent of it. I was like, really, oh. dude? That's that's your proof, bro. But 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 the, but, but the point the point is isn't the meat. The point is that like people, like when you're making a discussion with somebody in person, they're not gonna like be like, yo, dude, you're right. Right, because one of the reasons I went, I went from Z to non Z at one point. One of my doctor friends was like, "Well, meta isn't really meta because the animal still has a pulse, and how do you know it's not dead? All this stuff." So I was like, "Yeah, that makes kind of sense, right?" But usually, people aren't gonna like change their opinion right there. They'll like let it percolate for a while. They'll think about what you said like down the road. But when you're in these debates, sometimes I think what happens is, or online, ain't nobody trying to like show that they got owned. That's true, so, man. That's yeah, that's an arrogance thing uh, too, man. Just a couple of things um, with regards to the, the point about why why are gay people trying to get married? The reason <laughs> for that? Whoa, you went all the way back there. Okay, yeah. we thought we, okay, yeah, just, okay. Just, fairness, because you gotta, you know, we have to represent things as they are. Yeah. The reason same sex marriage is on the cards and why they're pushing for it is not because they want to necessarily institutionalize sodomy as such, because they can still engage in it without having any legal. You know, it was. It was decriminalized. It was illegal for a period of time, and then yeah. that was taken off the books. Still do that. The reason for it is actually for financial reasons. It's for taxation purposes, for visitation rights, for it's just to have a quote unquote family and all the rights that a family comes with, uh, regardless whether you have children or not. Um, the argument that goes back against um, having children is what about uh, couples who are sterile? Yeah. Are you going to say that they can't get married? They can't have children. So. The issue is actually more of an administrative thing and to just get rights and, and, and be treated as regular families would be treated. Um, so that's really it. And so the, the question is about what is the definition of marriage goes back to, well, where does the source of it come from? Yeah. Um, religious connotation. And so when you bring in the religion into it, then you actually exclude homosexual relations from it. So can you have a civil union where you can have all these rights together? Why do you have to call it marriage? And th- that's where all these debates are coming from. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to bring up was um, there was a stat that was published, I think, by Aqeen Institute and looking at um, college students, males and females. And they showed something like 65-year-olds, uh, 65% of college males, Muslims, have engaged in premarital relations. And 55% of females have engaged in, marital, in, pre, in premarital relations. That's where you have an increasing number of Muslim women, hijabis even, coming up and saying, I want to marry Bob. I want to marry John. I want to marry Mike. I'm in love with Mike. Well, where is that coming from? It's because they've already had relations. They've, they've made connections. And some of them have not, but many have. If you look at the numbers, one and two, one and three, that's um, or two and three, that's pretty high. 
So the question that uh, uh, that I find myself asking is, that all this is because of the hypersexualization of culture. I mean, everywhere you go, you can't avoid it. It's everywhere. And so the the sexual drive is is the buttons are being pushed all the time. And so you feel compelled now. It's almost like an alcoholic that goes to a liquor store all the time. At some point, something's got to break. Well, human beings are kind of like that. The, the desire, the sexual desire is already within you. Regardless of how it's being directed, it's being triggered all the time. And now you want to exercise it. So when you have marriage being blocked off from a lot of, uh, blocked off from a lot of Muslims, they're engaging in these actions. They recognize it's haram. They repent, they make tawbah. But you don't find Muslims now wanting to rewrite the Quran and reinterpret everything to say, yeah. you know, it's halal. So mm. my question is, why are you privileging homosexuality over heterosexuality for uh, allowing it to be expressed? They say, well, uh, there's, uh, there's going to be an outlet for uh, heterosexuals. They can get married after all. Actually, we have a marriage crisis. There's a lot of people that are not getting married. You're right. And the ruling doesn't change. If you can't get married, fast. If you can't get married, lawyer gays, don't do this. If you engage, if you fall off the off the off the horse and you engage in that, repent, come back. The same thing for Muslims who say that they have desires for the same sex. You're not allowed to exercise that. Well, that's oppressive. No, it's not. The oppressive thing is the culture that we live in that hypersexualizes everything. And one of the solutions for you to be able to handle this is the same solution that was given in the Sira books and in the Sunnah books about the man from Bani Israel who killed 99 people. Leave the place that you're in. Relocate. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you when people say like, oh, we didn't have a choice. What's the response? Allah will say, my land is vast. You could have gone somewhere else where you're not getting triggered all the time like this. Yeah, so, you know, that's an important point you just made because I remember when I was in uh, Pakistan recently, I want to say like two, three years ago. Um, and I, 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 I kid you not, man, it's, it's a like you, you people often say like you know oh the same type of haram is available in Muslim countries but that's not a it's a false equivalency it's um, the lewdness or the trigger points are not there they're not they're not in your face they're not they're not on billboards you don't see like uh, no, you don't on see the box. yeah like. I mean, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, because this is something that some critical race theorists like to bring up, and they say, like, what do you mean normalization? The normalization that we're talking about when we say you're normalizing homosexuality, I'm not talking about it being normalized in society. That's already there. I'm talking about it being normalized for yourself, that you no longer have a reaction when these things are mentioned, like Zina, for example, premarital relations. We watch all kinds of comedy shows. We laugh about it. We have sexual innuendos and connotations. People laugh and they joke about it. But if you look at the Quran and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about it, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes zina with such very di like very direct, um, extreme language. And so your reaction to premarital relations and adultery should be extreme. You should be like, this is this is an abomination. Regardless of hetero or homosexual, this is an abomination. So when we talk about normalization for the Muslim community, I'm talking about your reaction, you no longer find the haram reprehensible personally at a personal level. Yeah. Personal normalization, not general societal normalization. Yeah. No, and, and you're seeing all these things that with the with the whole Kavanaugh 
proceedings. I don't know if you pay attention to what's going on in America, yeah. all the way from Australia, but there's uh, there's this huge Supreme Court judge who's supposed to be uh, assigned to um, a seat in in the Supreme Court, and um, really it all stems from a d- drunk uh, high school party that happened, and at least that's what the first accusation is all about. But when you when you look at all the uh, all these cases. Every single case is all revolving around alcohol, right? And yeah. and uh, um, I was listening to another podcast recently, and it was talking about like how every sexual encounter that that both hosts were talking about, it always involved alcohol. And I'm like, and it it, it just dawned on me like how all these you know things are all interlinked with each other. Yeah. You know that that. They think that it's freedom that they're getting, but it's actually the source of their destruction. Yeah, and they just—they just—they—they they think that they've—they've uh, they've achieved some kind of liberation that, uh, you know, you know, even you know, I would respect—I respect some atheists who actually say, you know, I actually don't um, throw the baby out with the bathwater when I just uh, uh, when I became atheist. I—I I actually recognize um, some of the reasons why uh religions have things like you know um not drinking alcohol or the consumption of pork because they 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 said like you know back then they had all these reasons why their societies were were falling and collapsing and diseases were spreading and they must have ascribed reasons to it so you know in that kind of sense i kind of gave some kind of you know respect to this one atheist i was talking to and you know he he actually said that you know they there were people who had wisdom in the past and just because we forgot about why they came up with these things in their books doesn't mean that we have to really throw everything away but nowadays with the the liberal construct that's been established in the west it's like they've attained a new level of freedom that has never existed in history mm. yeah uh, a couple of points before i forget um <clears throat> Some of the critical race theorists might have a problem with a lot of what I'm saying, and they will come back and say, he doesn't even understand this. This is not valid. Every field has its critics. So if you want to be an objective person and a proper intellectual, engage with the the criticisms of critical race theory from actual scholars in the fields of sociology, because that's available. I'm not... When I say these things, by the way, it's not just my own concoctions. There are scholars who write against this stuff uh, the, for example, when I talk about the rejection of objectivity in critical race theory, that they don't accept that there is an objective truth, that they use uh, storytelling and autoethnographies as an epistemology, that this is how you know truth from falsehood. Um, I'm not the first one to point this out, and it's not a product of me being a neuroscientist who's studying medicine and he's a positivist and I get all these attacks. This is your own people that are saying these things. I'm just letting you know and exposing another side that you happen to read to a couple of authors, you follow a particular figure, you're really excited about the writing, go engage with the opposition. The same way that when I read neuroscience, I don't just read, uh, I'm not parroting neuroscience as the be-all or end-all, because I know all the criticisms of it. I read about it, I engage with it, I understand it. So that's why I'm not, people get confused, like how come you're a neuroscientist or a scientist and and not an atheist? You're a Muslim, I don't understand that. Mm. I actually go into philosophy of science, I know the limitations of this stuff. Same thing with critical race theory. Again, we're not saying that this whole thing is batil ala batil and just ignore all of it. But if you're going to use it as a paradigm where Islam becomes the tool, as Mahin pointed out, 
and critical race theory becomes your paradigm, yeah, it's bopping now. Now we got a problem. But if you're going to use it as a tool, a valid tool, a very good tool to examine and to identify things and to look at systemic oppressions and injustices and fix them and do all that, great. We're with you 100%. But that has to be through the lens of, I mean, there's a book that was just, um, it's coming out today, actually. It's, it launches today, uh, Imam Daoud Walid, um, Towards Sacred Activism. Yeah, yeah, just, you sent us a book as well. My God, my God. You guys have to got to go through that because yeah. it's just... I'm going to do, um, in my podcast, I'm going to do a review on this text. He actually shows, like, there are basic questions that critical race theorists have not defined. You know, in Islamic um, studies, you know, the so-called traditionalists, that they like to attack us with the term disparagingly, we like to define our terms. When you talk about justice is, what is justice? What constitutes oppression? Hmm. What constitutes equality? What constitutes all of these things? So that we can, so that we can engage. Well, we actually have in our sources, Allah tells us how he created the world. He created the human being. He knows you more. He's closer to you than your jugular vein or carotid artery, however you translate that. He's telling you what you're like. Allah tells you what you're like, how you're going to act when you're not praying, how you're going to act when you're praying, and you're connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time. Through the sunnah of the Prophet he tells you what we're about, how society is constructed, what is going to bring our downfall. He tells us all of these things down to Islam tells us that um, if you see uh, fornication become widespread, the people are going to have diseases that you guys haven't seen. Yeah. And so the whole module that you study in medicine about sexually transmitted infections, these things you will not get them unless you are a promiscuous person. Yeah. It, uh, like so, everything has been told to us. My question to the gentlemen and 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 uh, ladies and gentlemen of the critical race theory, the ones who are big fans of it who this is they they built their whole lives around this my question is what role does the quran active role not a recital but an active role in your life in the way that you look at everything what role does it play because when i look at the things that you are all engaged in most of you not all of you most of you when i look at the things that you're engaged in when i see that people that get into your field drop studying islam and they start coming out as gay or lesbian or bisexual. They, they drop their hijabs. They stop praying. They start drinking. They do all of these things. I have to, this is a, a, a legitimate question to ask. What is going on with your field that is producing people like that? Yeah. Hmm. Doc, I assume you read the YouTube questions then? I haven't read the YouTube because, questions. Because like, you seem like you like, read them and answered them already. The one question I think you answered, so a couple questions you asked about like, Somebody asked about you being having a background in neuroscience, and you addressed it. The one it's funny. Um, they asked like, so people they're saying that you are quoting people that quote stuff for their own agenda. Uh, you can tell us what's your agenda? <laughs> Aren't you? Yeah. Well, what are you up to, you yeah. neuroscientist? <laughs> no, I have to. I'm, here's a question to all of those listening, watching this live, or whatever. All I'm asking for number one, uh, ad hominem attacks don't work with me. You're going to attack backgrounds and ideologies or whatever. That's not the case. I want you to tackle the argument. If you're a rational human being, just look at what I'm saying, the content of my speech, and break it down. Don't just make claims, grandiose claims about, I don't have background, I'm quoting people. My agenda is simply bring you back to what Allah said and his messenger said. And that's it. Allah said it. That's my agenda. My agenda is to turn your attention to a simple fact. I find it really fascinating for all of those guys and, and girls. Women, men and women who are engaged in this, 
they will say they will throw all kinds of disparaging remarks they will say all kinds of things and then when it comes down to it none of the verses of the quran none of the hadith are actually addressed and in fact even in their responses the quran and the sunnah are absent dr. and so dr Gilan, wouldn't you say wouldn't you say like our our objective we i think we both have a, a shared objective in terms of the mad mamluks and and our friendship with you is that we want people to understand the reality for what it is look at, at it from whatever angle that you want you know yeah. but you want to examine the reality for what it is you don't want to just put a specific lens on everything and yeah. view the world through that lens of postmodernism or liberalism or conservatism learn what the world uh, or whatever it is that you're evaluating yeah. and look at the true nature of it and take your take your blinders off well, through the yeah. lens of islam basically no, right the, the it thing doesn't is have to be people... through, through the lens of islam even if it's like a, a a glass cup you're looking at you know a postmodernist will look at the the, the, the glass having um, uh, a domin dominance over the water you know and he'll he'll look at it and say like you know what um there's a power dynamic here at play uh, the water is Break not being the, able, the water is not being able to go where it needs to and um it's contained uh, break it drink, drink off the table truth is not known by the source of it the people that say it truth is known for, uh, people are known the, the real people are known by the truth that they speak and so I tell all these people, I've, I'm, I've tried to be as fair as possible. And I think, uh, you know, just out of fairness to me, I ask all of those uh, that attack my background, uh, what I've done for study officially and all of that stuff. I just ask you to cut me my props and just, you know, I, I acknowledge that there are validity in a lot of these things. I think I've explained it in a way that a lot of you don't even explain it properly to people because I understand the philosophical background and the baggage that this theory comes with. If you use it as a paradigm and as a worldview to look through, to look at the world through, I accept it as a tool to a limit, to a degree. A lot of them say that, oh, he's being incoherent. I'm not being incoherent. Every time I've said anything, I've always quoted the Quran and backed it up. I'm coherent with the Quran. I might be incoherent to you if you use that ideology because in some areas I seem to agree with you and in other areas I'm, I disagree with you. And that's where they say I'm being incoherent. Incoherent to you because you're using a, a circular type of logic. And you can't even speak about coherence when you reject objectivity. If you don't accept objective truth as a thing, and you reject logic, and you're suspicious of research and reason and all of these things, you actually have no right to speak about what is coherent and what is incoherent. It sounds like a, a lot problem of them, is they don't understand nuance, that you can agree with certain points yeah. of something yeah. and disagree. We get a lot of these comments in our inbox about, like, how could you have so-and-so because he said good things about this dude? Yeah. I'm like... Yeah, I'm like, you know what? You know, I I have disagreements with Dr. Gilan, but yeah. I I have, you know, 99% of what I agree with him is something that I want to build on, you know, and but it and I think there, there's people who he saw and said, "Do not be imma is like just waver back and forth like a feather in the wind, just kind of flowing. The people say this, I'm with you all the way through, and I'm with you over, I'm all the way through. 
it's fine for us to have disagreements. It's good. It's enriching. If we're not disagreeing, there's a problem. Somebody's not thinking. So what's that 1% you disagree with him? Uh, well, oh. we'll, we'll save it for after, after the podcast. we got to wrap things up right now. <laughs> no, just um, no, he knows what, what I uh, – we, we kind of talked about it last week. No, no, no. I, I don't even care. That's there's awesome, a couple though. of uh, – <laughs> Just trying to cause problems. There, there's, there's some comments coming through um, that – actually, shout out to Mort because he's, like, sending us stuff because we're getting YouTube interference, Mort right? Mort is such a gentleman. You know, so – um. More hold on before you say anything more bro. I miss you, bro. I love you. Thank you for taking care of me in Houston and it's bro. You are the man. I love you, bro. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. You know, so Mort sent in some stuff and there's a sister to ask no matter what people say about a, a question and I'll tie another example. Salam, I've come across a lot of women having spiritual crisis saying Islam oppresses women as women can't divorce travel in their own need for male witnesses in the cases. I think it's kind of in lieu with uh, what Sheikh Amr was talking about his example, different angle. Um, and before oh, you, I, but Dr. Gillan actually wrote an article about this, didn't you? Didn't you write this something? On, on, uh, I wrote so, a post. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, to sister, hop on, hop on to Dr. Gillan's Facebook page, or even on your Twitter. I think you put up a link, right? Yeah, I posted. I posted a post on Facebook, and I actually wrote an article that I'm still editing on it about this issue. I, I don't um, think a lot of it's in light of what Imam Zaid Shakir's post, because that like went, people went in the nutso. Well, yeah. Bananas. Uh, you know what? Uh, with all due love and respect to Imam Zaid, I honestly think he missed the point with that one. Um, this is one of the points where critical race theorists, I agree with you. You're right. There are certain issues in this. When we talk about the tradition, I don't mean to valorize it or um, I don't mean to make it untouchable in some way. Like this is the greatest thing ever and there's no problems and there's no issues. And look, man, we got issues of our own. We got things we need to revive. We need to reform some issues. Um, this is one of them. A lot of the books of fiqh, when you look into, <clears throat> I mean, if you look at the istifqat, Ibn Abdelbar, and he talks about the mustakraha, which is really a raped woman. Which chapter does he put it in? He puts it under the chapter of al-aqdiyah, as well as, so in just legal cases, and then he puts it under the chapter of hadda zina, the punishment for zina. And then he ha he relates some narrations about what is acceptable witnesses and whatnot, and, and, the, and the particular punishment, and how do you confirm it. You know what? This whole issue should not be in these in these chapters. It should be in the chapters of Hiraba, exactly. which is in some other texts in Hiraba. Yes, I agree, but it's it's muddy. It's not clear. Uh, the traditional scholars, because this is kind of a, a, a somewhat of a modern issue um, in the way that it's being addressed now. There have been men who've been raping <laughs> since time immemorial. It happened during the time of the Prophet that a man actually raped a woman. So we have that in the narrations. How is it categorized by the scholars? Which chapter should it go under? And what are the, the evidentiary proceedings for it? That part, in my estimation, Allah Alam, that needs to be reevaluated. It needs to be reevaluated. And so we agree, this is a problem. And we're not shy from saying that. And that doesn't make me less of a traditionalist. Yeah. But I guarantee you, traditionalists hear this and they put their arms up in air. But I, like, oh. can I just add on to something to that? Like, like you mentioned that you think it should be in a certain chapter and stuff. But that's only now. That's even up until like the late 80s, maybe. But up until then, no one had a problem with it, right? No one had a problem with many of the ways. So what we're actually what we're actually doing, I'm glad you brought this up, to to make people understand that it is what it is. But in order to give it today's context, it should belong underneath a different title. Yes. Right. Because yes. It, that's for us, though. But yes. even, even then, look how much people are willing to go to make you understand and and, and just just understand the essence of as, as far as rules and regulations in the Sharia are, right? People are willing to do that. So it's not like you're alone where you may have a dilemma with something. It's maybe not 
palatable to the Western mind, a scholar from uh, uh, Islamic scholar uh, yeah. possessing a Western mind. But it, it it becomes a dilemma for me is when people take something so uh, out, of, out of the grand scheme or they take this and they use it as a source. Um, even though they're Muslim, they use it as a source against themselves and against the deen and against the Muslim. Oh, right? I got to tell you, I got to read this up for you because somebody wrote this. And I've been meaning to because because what they do is they actually turn Islam into a personality thing, yeah. and that's how they reject the tradition. And so this gentleman wrote, um, I'm just going to read the first little bit of traditional uh, traditionalism, and then he puts in TM like trademark. Uh, <laughs> died for me when I got to know CD and then redacted. CD redacted was one of traditionalism standard bearers in Australia. He was recognized by many of his peers, quote unquote peers and defended by them even as criticism of him mounted and culminated in his fall from grace. The first sentence really struck me. Traditionalism died for me when I got to know such a person. So you've hinged your whole religion, your understanding of Islam on a personality. Yep. This is where the problems begin. Yep. Once you link it to people, it's people. Ibn Mas'ud said, if you're going to take people as uh, examples, go with people in the graves because they're safe from tribulations and from, you yeah. know, Go to that. that. Don't. There are people that fall from grace. People have doubts about their religion because somebody happened to be a human being who happened to do something that you find uh, a bon, uh, you know, an, ab an abomination of some sort. So, all the works of a word of advice to the listeners and people watching this: the Islamic tradition. When I say, when I, because some traditionalists don't like it when I say they're men. I'm not saying that I'm like them, the scholars. What I'm saying is that as human beings. They were part of a context, a socio-cultural, political, economic context in which they lived. They engaged with the tradition based on their understanding of science, of social, of society, how things should work out. And that's what they did. Now, we are men like them. We are human beings like them. We're men and women like them in the sense that we have our own context. But we still have, Allah Taala promised to preserve this religion, the primary sources, and the tools to interpret it. So there's, I don't think there is anything wrong with us looking at these books and having a nuanced understanding, a different understanding, for example, of relationships that end up in what we term today as this is rape, this is wrong. And so we go into the books of fiqh and the, the way that the scholars address it and say, for their time, I don't make a moral judgment against them. I just say their understanding of the world and their dynamics, their social dynamics, exactly. how they came up with it. Our social dynamics are different. We can engage back with the text and come up with a different understanding that serves us based on the tradition, meaning the Quran and the Sunnah. Yes. All yeah. right, man. Before we wrap up, there's one point you made on the podcast at the very end that I was trying to digest. You seem to make a correlation that when you hear about certain folks that come from an Islamist background and they end up in these like supporting these kind of ideologies oh, like critical boy. race theory oh, yeah, can, can, yeah, like, oh, can you tell me about islam? That, that, what you mean by islamist i don't know what you mean by islam yeah because uh, mean the, many the, things you're Gilan, you triggered me on that you, uh, <laughs> you triggered me man you should you should have you should have known like while you're saying that you know i want to piss off sim <laughs> when i say this because uh, right. a, lot, a lot of us came back from that background we didn't we didn't go down the majid nawaz's uh Path. So anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about that because I know you're planning on a full episode regarding that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, by I, the I, way, Mahin's question is re regarding uh, Dr. Gilan's recent po podcast episode. If so, a lot of listeners who don't understand what he just asked about, um, 
Just okay, don't I'm worry still about clueless, it. but whatever. Because you don't listen to Dr. Gillan's podcast. No, that's no, that's not what I'm talking about. I didn't know. I didn't hear his whole question. His whole question. Well, I I wanted to cut him off because it's a. Uh, because it can, it, go, it, down, it, it can it, go down to a long rabbit hole and, and okay. Go. No, Sims are afraid of offending some of our listeners who are like, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah well, we we have a we bring a lot of people together, right? We don't we don't and mashallah, Doctor Gilan, you have a lot of pro, a lot of li, a lot of those type of listeners as well. So, uh, well, we'll talk after the podcast. Right. Uh, let me. I, let I me still just, don't know what's going on, but it's all good. Of what it is, yeah. I said I was I'm not surprised when I hear that someone who was. All gung ho for Hizb al Tahrir. And then all of us. <laughs> you said, or yeah. Like, I'm talking about extremists, like, like really yeah. going after it. And then they leave it and they drop it and they become either like a Majid Nawaz type or they become uh, like someone who's all about CRT, critical race theory. I'm not yeah. surprised when that happens. And the reason I said that is because when people go into this. Um, my problem is that when you when you when you involve yourself in a movement, whatever the movement is, and your obsession is with political power, mm. you realize that I'm in a movement that you come to a realization at some point where you're like for you, your subjective assessment of it is this is not gonna work out, then you abandon it and go to the next thing where you uh, find it. Yes. That's what mm. and that's why I said I'm Okay, okay. I, I can I, I can get that. You know what? I can yeah. agree with you on that. I'm glad. Yeah. We're still friends. <laughs> you better be, man. He's about to delete the podcast. Is, there's very little that Dr. Gilan could do to really upset me about anything. Yeah, but, all of us, man. I'll disagree with him on once in a while on a, on a few yeah. points, but you know, in Hamdullah, like you know, you can just disagree with with anything Dr. Gilan says, and he. But I think what what I always tell people is that, you know, on Twitter you have like um a small space to work with and. You, whenever, whatever way you you come across as, it just sounds rude. And you because know, of I, shortness I, of the shortness of the character, just, yeah, I encourage people yeah. just to write an email and just say like, "Hey, you know what? Um, this is what what my issues are, and can you explain it to me?" And I know Dr. Gilan just through listening to his podcast, he goes through a lot of these Q and A sessions where he's going through a lot of the questions that are sent to him, and he'll address it if it's a, really a good question, but. Um, I I don't it like what, some of the responses yeah. that you we saw on Twitter. Uh, Look at it recently. I, I will. I've I've read lengthy emails and messages from people. Yeah. Where I actually it came through in the message where that they were concerned and they wanted to share something with me that they thought I didn't pay attention to. I didn't. I will read those. I'll reassess. I'll reexamine. I have no problem walking back anything that I say if I'm shown that what you said was wrong. And here is the reference. The reference for what you said is wrong, and this is this is actually the truth. No problem whatsoever. I'll go back to it. Imam Shafiri said, I think it was Imam Shafiri said, a person to be scared of is one who you tell them uh, something and they find out that it's the right thing and they go back on it. Because like that's the person. You know, concerned. and that's something that the, yeah. the the other side cannot say for themselves. Because the last time I've seen anyone from the 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 umbrella of the liberal camp. Uh, especially in, in the Muslim community, actually going back and admitting to certain mistakes that they've made, it never happens. I've seen conservative Muslim scholars actually admit to certain mistakes that they've made. Certain... Post apologized, right, 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 yeah, right, right. And we don't we don't see that from their camp because they're they're not grounded in the religion. It's only the religion is a, like we said talked about earlier. It's a tool for their objective, for their marketing Perform. campaign. Right. We use their. Technology, religion is a performance. 
Exactly. Yeah. Hey, Doc, you mentioned something a lot in the whole theme of this podcast, of this interview, or this conversation, whatever you want to call it, about, like, reflecting the Quran, how you're, like, going back, like, today I read the Quran. So, like, some people have a issue. They're like, how do I read the Quran? They're like, it's, like, maybe it's over their head. How do you read the Quran? Or, or do, when you read it, like, is it because you're reading in Arabic and you understand it in Arabic and you're able to reflect that way? Or, like, like if someone wants to do what you're – like, just to, like – engage on a daily basis that's your that's a takeaway that i'm getting from this show is like and a, it's a takeaway that a listener should probably should get when they're looking at their worldview but how where do they start so it's, can i just well, understand the question what you mean is you what is what is reading the quran is that what you're asking yeah like you, you say you should be reading the quran what is that yeah because right. you're getting you draw all these lessons because we're talking about these subjects and you're just dropping like allah says this allah says that right and that's not coming from just a re- the arabic reading when someone's just doesn't understand the arabic right yeah it, like there's there, there's got to be like how does someone daily like like read the Quran and with that understanding that they can just implement and they're able to draw these comparisons as they live their lives and when they're dealing with these issues that's you, that's been a theme of this whole uh, conversation I, mean, I, I think I mean Doctor Gilad I think what I think what you're trying to say is like when I read the Quran I just try to see like how that verse is relatable to relatable to me in my yeah. immediate reality or whatever, whatever my sphere is, whatever is happening to me in my life or certain things that really resonate to me on a, on a deeper level. I kind of, yeah. is that, is that what you're talking about? Mahin? Like even when you're reading, well, I think what he's saying, like what, what is the concept oh. of reading? Like, like he said, they need a relationship with the Quran. Right. So I think you're trying to break, break it, break it down molecularly. Cause yeah. he, he says it many times, even throughout your podcast. Right. You say, you know, you have to have a, you should be reading the Quran. Like, what do you mean by reading the Quran? Like just break it down for us and our guests. Like, what do you mean? What is reading the Quran? Well, there are a couple of levels that I read the Quran. At. So I have my daily words where Alhamdulillah, like, so you do it. Um, there's a, What's a the daily word? word after he's going to explain. Where does like, Wird, wird is a is a, a regular recurring um, amount of recitation that you do or adhkar that you do. Mm. That's a recurrent morning and uh, evening adhkar, for instance. That's a wird. Yeah, I was, you do I was asking for the listener. Oh, my bad. My, no, yeah. no, I know. I, I know what it is. Oh, my bad. Fluctuates. It depends on how busy I am Typical or whatever. I try, to, I try to go through about five ahzab a day of just reciting. Just revision of the Quran and reciting it. I do five hizbs, which is about two and a half juz. His? And then don't, don't. <laughs> this is two hizbs. There he said it again. <laughs> he yeah, he did. Sorry, you know, go there's on, two hizbs and one juz. When one, okay. when one para. Okay. I, I go about, one I, go about, I thought he was talking about the group. Sorry. Yeah. Go on. Thank no. you. He got excited. <laughs> he got excited. He started salivating. So I go. I go through two two and a half juz a day. I I just go through ahzab because this is the way the Quran is divided for me. 60 ahzab, so I go through two, two, uh, five a day. And then <clears throat> I read tafsir. Yeah. And when I read tafsir, I will take, I have a daily allotment of tafsir that I read. And right now I'm going through um, Ibn Ashur's and um, yes. uh, and Nasafi's and Al-Baydawi's. So I'll take whatever passages that I'm going through and I'll just read Nasafi's, I'll read Al-Baydawi's, and then I'll read um, Ibn Ashur's tafsir on it. And I highlight, I go through even my own Mus'haf, my personal copy of the Qur'an. It's filled with highlights and annotations. Yeah. And like tags and things. And so it's, there is the, the ritual level of reciting. And then there is the studying level, which is, this is where I go into the tafsir of it. If you don't, there are English tafsirs available, I think. 
I'm not sure which not ones Nesafi, are. Not Bidawi, not Ashur for sure. I think I think there's some people who have been trans trying to translate Tahir ibn Ashur uh, for um, <coughs> in the UK, but um, started with Imam Razis. Um, yeah, Sahib Said. So that's um so that's but there are some English. I think that Ibn Kathir probably was done in, in, in English. Yeah. English. That's available, but I would recommend you first you have to have the ritual level of reciting, and then you have your engagement with it through the tafsir. If you speak English and if you don't speak the Arabic or you don't understand the Arabic, uh, definitely read the translation. I my recommendation is MS Abdul Halim's um, translation is my favorite one. And then engage with the tafsir. And as you read it, try to think of the greater implication of what is being there. And you'll find yourself just becoming more readily, uh, that the verses will start to come to you more readily when you come across things and when you see things. Start to apply it more in your life. Um, and then outside of that, when I'm going out, if I'm not listening to uh, the Mad Mamluks or another podcast, I'm listening to Quran. What a guy. <laughs> I'm listening to Quran when I'm going through, and as I listen to Quran, again I use it as a method to as a, to revise. So I'm walking to the bus stop or just riding the bus or whatever. It's a method, and at the same time, I'm I'm thinking about what is being recited. Mm. Yeah, can I just um, add on to that really quickly? I know we have to wrap up. Can I just say something really quick? What I think, we really which may help. It's got to be like two minutes, well, less than two minutes, inshallah. Is so, no, that's tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that helped me a lot uh, is that. Um, a, a lot of pe- times people ask questions, especially if they don't understand the Quran. If you understand the Quran, this is going to benefit. If you don't, it's going to benefit, inshallah. What does it mean to open the Quran and read? Right? Reading the Quran is of a few things, right? There's actually a definition for the Quran. First, you have to understand, like, linguistically, definition of the Quran just means, like, a recite- recitation, a reading, right? It comes from Qara'ah. But the Quran itself has a definition. To understand what the Quran is, is know the definition, and I'll give a method to which worked for me. Obviously, what the Sheikh gave is obviously uh, I can't ever top that because it's Sheikh Muhammad Lidan, first of all. But uh, but 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 there's a definition, right? The Quran is uh, the kalam of Allah, right? It is a speech of Allah, غَيْرُ makhluk, uncreated, mm. given to Muhammad sallam by Jibreel sallam from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, preserved in the mushafs, meaning from cover to cover, that's what a mushaf is, right? And that will help us in the ruling of understanding if it has English in it, is it a mushaf, is it not a mushaf? From cover to cover, it's a mushaf, preserved in the mushafs. Reached to us by mutawatir transmit, right? It has reached us by way of mutawatir. And we can get into this in another episode, inshallah. And is a challenge to humanity to bring something like it, and you get ajr for reading it. It's all of those in one. That is a definition, general understanding of the definition of the Quran. There's gonna be you're gonna find many definitions, but just to give you some some direction, that is what you're about to read. Before you read it, the definition of the Quran technically is that. Now, when you open the Quran, you're reading for this, especially when you start off and you don't have a, a, a direction because you don't have a direction. You don't know why you're reading it. Know that every time you open the Quran, Allah is going to teach you about yourself. Mm. What that means is the pathway to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with yourself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, afala Within you is the greatest sign of Allah. Don't you see? And he used the sense of seeing, right? Which is there's a lot of hikmah behind that, inshallah. And just do the do the research and the tafsir. So 
another thing as far as he mentioned tafsir mashallah the books that he mentioned are very uh advanced and it's awesome that he gave you guys that but even on a very basic level if you're starting to learn arabic there's something that was given to me when i first started learning arabic and i still love this method there's a book called kalimat al-quran right to start off with surah al-nas this is how i start off when i first learned arabic just as far as tafsir is concerned surah al-nas so go start off with surah al-nas as far as tafsir is concerned and then go to tafsir ibn kathir for instance just surah al-nas you could finish that in about three or four minutes probably right and then go to some other excerpts from other scholars you know sunni scholars of 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 that have been translated from classical books maybe but even if you just read uh surah al-nas with this translation or the kalimat al-quran there's a book there's, there's a book called the kalimat al-quran and then go through tafsir ibn kathir just one day don't overburn yourself if it takes you three minutes so be it close it you're done for today <coughs> next day or the few days after that do surah al-falaq that's it read the translation of whatever translation what translation do you mention uh Yes, and then after that, just do Tafsir ibn Kathir. So now you understand what the Quran is. You know why you're opening it. It's because you you want to learn about yourself, and then you bring the academic aspect of it, or just understanding the knowledge of what you're actually reading, right? The the backdrop behind it. For me, it was very like even I think that this is something that you can teach to children, and you could e- actually teach to adults too, right? It makes it very easy for yourself. You know, it's not a difficult thing. That's the only reason why I simplified. It's not difficult, man. You know. It's a really, really easy thing to do. Inshallah. Allah subhanahu wa says that he has made it, you know, he made it facilitated for people. The Quran is, <clears throat> one of the things that even when I'm doing the ritual recitation, the thing that Shaykh Ahmed mentioned is actually what I, was present in my mind. Allah is telling me about me, how he created me. He's telling me about the world, how he created the world. So as I'm reciting the Quran, I'm remembering that. And so I find myself oftentimes I'll go through a verse and it's like, I have this reaction. like, mm. And then I go back to the verse again because it just hits me. I'm like, mm, this is <laughs> wow. And so I actually pause like, wow, that's something else. And then I'll go on and I'll put in a little annotation. I always, in my recitation, even the ritual one, I have a pen with me and my highlighter. And I'm just like, all right. So, and then I put in a thing on the side because to me, the Quran is meant to be engaged with. Allah. And that, mm, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that was the sound of his ruh. <laughs> All right, Jazakallah Khair, Dr. Muhammad Gilan. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you, thank you for engagement in your questions. There's some yeah. questions we'll forward on to you. Yeah, uh, because we couldn't get you, to all of them. Listeners, you can communicate with us also on uh, Mad Mondays, where me and Mort are on. And now sometimes there are going to be other people like these two who, uh, if they so choose to join, um, I, I know we all have busy work schedules and whatever so if Sheikh Hammer uh, blesses us with the, his company on one of these Mad Mondays he, why are you saying that we got Dr. Ghilana don't tell you blesses me man this guy's here man <laughs> so save your questions for one of those Mad Mondays maybe we can send it on to Sheikh Hammer um, go ahead Dr. Ghilana alright yeah there's there's a quiz. some questions we'll send to Dr. Ghilana that we off topic but we'll make sure we'll get them answered inshallah so for our listeners out there you can Email us at info at themadmamluks.com. Don't use the Gmail address anymore. And then we're like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and give us a five-star review on iTunes and subscribe on YouTube. And hopefully with this show, inshallah, we can put it on a podcast format at some point. But for y'all who are with us live, thank you for sitting through this. Um, and for our special guest, Dr. Muhammad Gilan, and my co-host, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum. Oh.